Hi, I'm Brett Terpstra, and this is Systematic on 5x5. Bandwidth for September has been provided by Cashfly, the fastest, most reliable CDN in the business. Cashfly delivers all of our content here at 5x5, and they really are the best. Check them out at cashfly.com, C-A-C-H-E, fly, and let them know you heard about them on 5x5. My guest this week is, once again, John Roderick, back for part three of his saga. How's it going, John? Good. It really is a saga. <laughs> I think that's a I think that's a great thing to be able to say about one's life. Whether it was whether it was a saga of hardship and trials or a a dream ride to be able to say my life has been a saga instead of eh my life has been there. Yeah, well wait until we get to the part where I am put on a in a burning canoe and sent out into the ocean. That really is a great story. <laughs> so when we left off, you had gone on a walkabout, if I can mm-hmm. call it that. Uh, mm-hmm. You, you had- cannot. I, do, I, I revoke your permission to call it a walkabout. But yeah, a long walk. Fair enough. Because it was a straight line, more or less. I mean, you right. had a destination. Right. I was not walking about. I was walking <laughs> thither. A, a walking about. It was, um, it was a walk thither. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, all right, and you had returned to Seattle. Yes. And you had shown up inadvertently at a Harvey Danger video release party. Right. Uh, right. A, a classic example of just like coincidental uh, luck of the draw happenstance that sort of changes the course of your life. So... If I, if I had not been dropping that friend off in front of that apartment building and gone into that video shoot at that moment, I, or not video shoot, video debut, I don't know how different how differently my life would have turned out. I imagine it would be quite different, but continue from there. Well, so, uh, so Sean made this overture. I want to. I, I think we should get together. I, you know, I've heard about you over the years. You know, he and I had met a few times. We were aware of each other, but he was like, "I hear things about you from other people that indicate to me that you and I should get together for dinner and talk about stuff." And I was like, "Sounds good to me." Um, he'd always been. Uh, he he was a fairly prominent writer. In Seattle, he'd written for the University of Washington paper when I was there, and then he'd become one of the editors at The Stranger. And Sean was a very prolific writer. Uh, you'd often open The Stranger, and there would be a feature by Sean, but also 15 reviews, 15 album reviews, and three film reviews. And you know, you, you would get a, a sense sometimes that he was writing half of the newspaper every week. So he was a even before Harvey Danger became famous, Sean was a well-known voice in the town. And um, so I agreed that we should go out to dinner, and we did. And it was at a time he, was, he had you know, um, money and fame. So we went to uh, Morton's Steakhouse. And we sat downstairs at Morton's Steakhouse and we both smoked cigarettes at the time and we ordered just a ridiculous bunch of steak and um, sat and smoked cigarettes and had one of those sort of 
once-in-a-lifetime effortless conversations with one another where he was a few years younger than I was, enough younger that it seemed significant at the time. I was 31 and Sean was probably 26. But he had this, you know, this um, loquaciousness and and an intellect that was combined with a kind of like extensive knowledge, not just of popular culture, but like he would make and also get references across a, a huge spectrum of like sort of Western knowledge. Maybe not a lot of science, but he's smart enough that he he was not in the dark about science. But certainly anything cultural, he had a really good hand on. And, you know, you get used to living in a kind of, in an arts culture, you get used to dealing with kind of a lot of pseudo-intellectuals, people who are capable of referring to books, but not referring to the content of the book. And it's, it's one of the classic litmus tests for me, uh, whether when you're in a conversation or listening in on a conversation, whether it just sort of leapfrogs from book title to book title or whether it delves into the substance of of the books like uh like referencing Bukowski well or just so many so many cocktail party conversations among literati end up um end up being this uh competition to see who can you know somebody references a book then someone else references another book by the same author then someone else references a book by a, a contemporary of that author or a, you know somebody who's in their social circle and you realize that what people are doing is they've read all the they've read the new york review of books basically and they understand the landscape of the book world and who knows who and what books point to what other books but they're not engaged in the culture of ideas they're not they don't care really the the books aren't like taking them places they're just in the sport of books let me derail you for one second do you think mm -hmm. the same thing happens with people who are really into music and songs absolutely deeply profoundly true that people become band collectors culture collectors yeah where they know every film by the director and they know his friends and they know all the other you know, cinematographers, or they know every, you know, it's, a, it's one of the most exasperating things about being a musician <laughs> is you sit down and talk to somebody and they're like, oh, do you like this band? And you're like, yeah, I love that band. And they're like, oh, did you know that the bass player is married to the singer of the, <laughs> and you're like, no, I didn't know that. And I, why are we talking about that? That's not, you know, like I love that band because of the way they make me feel and the way the music, like, uh, the place the music takes me and what their record label is couldn't be less interesting to me. But Sean had an intellect that was, that was real. And so he and I were discovering each other in this initial lunch or a dinner conversation where it was just like, Oh my God, you know, you, cause you, you get in the habit of kind of, you, you absorb so much culture over the course of your life that, you just intersperse your conversation with references to things you're not even aware you're making. You're just sort of, it's part of the soup of, of being a learned person. You sort of, I mean, the number of Shakespeare references that are just floating around in the culture and nobody even remembers that they're from Shakespeare. They've just become part of the, the lingua franca. And 
Sean would, you know, we, we would talk and I would say something and he would tag it. You'd see him go like, oh, you know, nice Henry Miller reference or whatever. And I'd be like, whoa, good catch. And it was, there was a sport to it, but it was fun because it was, because it was just a little side tag on the way to then discussing the, the idea. You know, he didn't get hung up on it. Right. And, and he was peppering his conversation with all this, you know, all this substantive knowledge so that, so that I felt like I had discovered someone who understood me maybe more completely than even people that I really thought were my peers. You know, here was a guy a little bit younger than I was, slightly different set of references. He definitely was more into Morrissey, for one, than I could ever possibly be. (laughs) But, um, and Sebado, like his, his touch points were Morrissey and Sebado, neither one of which ever really meant anything to me. And interestingly, I think that's characteristic of his generation of songwriters because Colin Malloy also, Morrissey and Sebado, and you hear their influence in the way that those guys sing and, and think. And uh, both Morrissey and Sebado always just seemed like, to me, just like, ugh, just I'm, fingernails on a chalkboard. I'm having trouble correlating the two, though, because I didn't mind Sebado, but I, I couldn't stand Morrissey or the yeah, Smiths, really. It, it, it's, a, it's a kind of thread. It's a certain kind of... Down-tempo? Uh, no, I think it has to do more with a, a with a certain sort of language of emotion, a rawness of emotion that um, that seems especially revealing and naked and pure, I guess, to to fans of it. I think one and, is just more pretentious than the other. Well, and for, to me, it always feels like well, that's a little bit. Um, uh, maybe just like reading your journal almost or, or, or not, not quite as artful as, I mean, even if you couch your emotions in like swords and sorcery, like metal dudes do, <laughs> at least there's a little bit of like, uh, it's, it's not just you talking about how, how hurt you are. But then again, I am okay. not, a, I'm, I'm not a fan. Right. Anyway. So at the end of this first conversation, we both kind of walked out of there a little bit in a daze where it was like, well, that was fun. Like, to really be able to talk, you know, part, part of the problem of having a, a generalist's mind is that you never feel like you're fully understood or even fully in conversation with other people because you're, you're, you always have to kind of modify your conversation to the, to the other person's world to the other person's worldview you know you can't go all the way and make all the connections to things because you lose people and and it isn't a it isn't a case of like you know that your ideas are so heavy that you you lose them because they're not smart enough to get them it's just a wide knowledge of the world it's exciting because you can roam all around and you can be like right that's you know that thing about dirt bike racing really has a, a tremendous commonality with the with uh with socrates or whatever and it's like dirt bike racing and socrates you'll meet people who know a lot about both of those silos 
but not a lot of people that can make any connection between the two. And it's just a kind of way of thinking that Sean and I share. And so, so exciting to meet another person like that. And Sean had a lot of mannerisms and, and things that, that felt alien to me, but, but exciting because it's, you know, it's another person you meet for the first time. So we decided, all right, we were going to have these regular meetings. We were going to meet regularly for steak and cigarettes because it suddenly felt very important that we do. And I was, you know, I was back from my walk across Europe. I did not feel like I had learned anything profound about myself except that now I knew I could walk for six and a half months without stopping. That was something I knew that I didn't know before. But that didn't turn into any, I mean, I did, it was not an eat, pray, love experience where I, where I met the love of my life out in Bangalore and, and wrote a best-selling book. It was, that experience was really, uh, I tried to beat myself up and I successfully beat myself up. And then I came back and had all the same problems I'd had before I left. But, but this, uh, this weekly lunch with Sean was a, was sort of a light for me like oh this is very exciting um and it felt like we were in having met another person uh that shared that kind of thinking it felt like oh there are we have a window now on the world like this isn't just a reflection this is a this is a triangulation on the world that you can accomplish if you have another person out there who can see this way but 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 differently and at a certain point, of course, in the, in the time, the dark time before podcasts, at one point he brought a tape recorder and was like, I'm going to start tape recording these conversations because, you know, this feels like, at one point it felt like if we just transcribed it and then turned it into a play, it would be like my dinner with Andre, except not deadly boring. My dinner with Andre being one of his, one of his major uh, cultural touch stones that I sort of was always contemptuous of. And, and that was a big part of our relationship too, that Sean was ultimately very earnest, a fan of things, a, a believer in things. And I was pretty, uh, not cynical, but uh, I guess partly cynical, but also I felt like, you know, I'm, I'm now subsequently I've gone on record a lot as someone who's not a fan particularly, you know, other people's work is interesting to me, but I find it kind of not just difficult, but also a sort of a waste of time to delve into someone else's imagination for, for any kind of prolonged experience. Like if I, if I like a writer or a director, like I go through his stuff or her stuff and I, I enjoy it, but to be a fan is to, I feel like seed some portion of my imagination to them. Like I love your imagination so much. I'm just going to go live there for a while. And it's like, no, there's never, I've never met a, or, and when I say met, I mean absorbed someone else's creative output in a way where I felt like I prefer to be in their world than in mine. Is, uh, is that, that seems, I don't know. Is it possible to Okay, would you say that there are people that you sincerely appreciate and consider influences without being uh what you determine as a fan? 
Oh, thousands. I mean, I'm I'm massively influenced by the whole culture, but I guess I guess I am just as influenced by things that I that I absorb and hate as I am by things that I absorb and love. So it's more that you have an issue with fan as a short shortening of fanatic. No, it's not even an issue. It's that my that I am not made that way. Okay. You know, and that that um that my feeling about like multiple like reading a book multiple times or reading or watching a movie multiple times that that is a expression of a desire for for comfort in a lot of ways like you know what happens at the end of Star Wars you're not watching it to see what happens right you know every minute of it you're just watching it again because you like it so much and partly it is it becomes a a, a cuddly blanket that you can just be there and you you get to enjoy it as a child but you're not you're not no critical faculty is engaged over time right you're just you're just wallowing in it i get and it. it and it feels like that is a i think a big part of our culture now we have we allow, we you know we encourage ourselves we allow ourselves to watch the sopranos all the way through 16 times and of course you're always getting new things out of it but a lot of that impulse is just to be in a comfortable place and to be in a you know and really in the warm embrace of someone else's imaginary world right well see i've always considered there to be uh the producers of content and the fans of content like mm-hmm. there's a divi- a division there and producers can be fans of other content mm-hmm. that influences the way that they work within reason but yeah. i mean i clearly consider you a producer of content i don't think anyone could argue with that so it makes sense to me that you have a more cynical view of the idea of fandom. Yeah, I look at stuff and and I I'm always I guess looking at it to see how it was made, but once I understand how it was made, I don't then take a lot of pleasure in in staying there with it and having it hug me and whisper sweet nothings in my ear. You know what I mean? Like yeah. like I watched Star Wars in 1977 at the Cinerama in Seattle. And then I probably, I mean, it made enough of an impact on me. I never would have had to have seen it again. Uh, The fact that I was, you know, that I have seen it multiple times is just a factor of having been at parties where it was playing or something. You know, it's not a thing I would seek out to see again. Sure. Um, Anyway, so, and Sean is a, uh, is a profoundly a creator of things, but also a fan of things, a consumer of things. And so that was always a tension between us and, uh, and what I always considered to be a friendly tension and what he considered to be an antagonistic tension because I would go, ha, 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 you like that thing? And he would go, yes, I do fucking like it. It's amazing. <laughs> and I would be like, ha, ha, really? Yeah, that thing. I mean, I guess if that's what you're into, that seems kind of like a dumb thing, but all right, if you like it. And he's like, yes, I fucking like it. And why are you so mean? And, you know, that was always like a dynamic between us. And partly I felt like it was a little generational and partly it's a little bit just that he and I are very different. Sure. But at, at a certain point, my, uh, my good friend Mike Squires, who um, I don't know if he has appeared in the story already, but he uh, plays guitar in Duff McKagan's band Loaded. 
But at the time, Wait, he Duff was... Duff McKagan of Guns N' Roses? Yeah, Duff McKagan has a, has a band uh, of just his songs where he's the lead singer. Okay. And Mike is his lead guitar player. I will have to look that up because one of my favorite... Some of my favorite Guns N' Roses, when they did the Spaghetti Incident, mm-hmm. some of my favorites were actually the ones where Duff sang, so... And the thing about Duff is he's an amazing dude and a great songwriter and a, and a supporter of Seattle and a cool writer. He's a great dude nice. all around. All right. Highly recommend. But uh, at the time, Squires was playing in a band called the Nevada Bachelors. And the Nevada Bachelors and the Western State Hurricanes and Death Cab for Cutie all played you know, a, a bunch of shows together in the late 90s. We were contemporaries and members of the same small music scene. Uh, and... Mike came to me at one point when I was having these lunches with Sean and he was like, hey, you play the piano, right? And I said, mm, not really. I mean, I can, you know, I can play a C chord and I mean, I know where the notes are. I can count from, you know, I start at middle C and I count up or down and I can tell you what <laughs> the key is and I can play, you know, play little beep, boop, beep, boop, 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 sort of little things. And he was like, oh, well, um, I was... Uh, Harvey Danger just asked me to join their band as as second guitar, and um, they asked me if you could play the piano, and I told them yes, you could. So you should, if they call you and ask you if you can play the piano, you should say yes. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. So almost immediately, my phone rang, and it was Sean, and he said, um, "Mike Squires tells us you play the piano. Is that true?" And I was like, "Yes, I totally do." And he said, well, we would like to audition you to be the piano player of Harvey Danger because we have a new record that's sort of been delayed um, in, the, in a label shakeup. And uh, it's our follow-up record to the big hit record. And we're going out on tour and we feel like we need two extra guys, utility guys, to flesh out our sound. And so I was like, great, sure. And so... So I was scheduled for scheduled to rehearse, and the the uh, their guitar player Harvey Danger's guitar player Jeff Lynn is actually a classically trained pianist, and Sean had been playing sort of rough keyboard parts during their sets. You know, he'd have a keyboard up there and go hammer on it, but they were looking for somebody somewhere in between that could you know a utility piano player. So I went and sat at the piano and kind of. Tried to, you know, spent a few days just trying to like move my fingers around the keys and get where I could reliably go from C major to G major without having to count. And then I went uh, and auditioned. And right away, Jeff Lynn um, was like, well, You don't know how to play the piano. <laughs> And I was like, well, yeah, technically I don't. But I mean, I didn't used to know how to play the guitar and I learned. And he was like, well, yeah, but I mean, we're leaving on tour and there's a whole record of songs to learn and you don't really know how to play the piano at all. I was like, "Mm, technically, you're right. But I really feel like, you know, and I had had listened to some tracks they gave me and I had kind of figured out like one note melodic versions of the progressions. I was like, you know, I can kind of do this. And he was like, ugh. He was very disappointed. But Sean pretty much said, "Mm, I think he should be in the band. And I 
don't think anybody else in the band agreed. But I was friends with Squires and friends with every, I mean, you know, a friendly guy. And Sean really, more than anything, I think, wanted, um, I mean, I could sing backing vocals, harmony vocals, which was an asset. But he wanted an ally and, a, um, and like a sergeant at arms maybe. And it's, it's weird for me now to reflect on it because I have, I don't think of myself as someone's consigliere or, or um, like uh, doting tonto. Sure. But I have filled that role for people over the years. Someone who um, maybe isn't fully a member of the organization, but is just like the friend who travels along for a while and, and does a, a little bit speaks truth to power and a little bit just gets the jokes and, and it seems fun to have me around. I mean, I've, I, I'm in that role sometimes with Hodgman and, um, actually, uh, uh, like it happens fairly often that I will get recruited for that job by somebody <laughs> like, you know, where the offer is I'll fly you there and put you up in a hotel and you just have to be there f- for four days. Sure. Is that cool? And I'm like, yeah, I don't see myself as that person. I see myself as the star of the show, but I end up in that role. And this was the first instance where it was like, they're going to pay me and I'm going to be on stage every night and um, and really, my job is to just kind of hang around. And so we went out on tour, and it was uh, it was very clear the the first place we went we we were on a promo tour. We flew in to um, Portland, Maine, and the tour bus met us there. And the tour manager was like, "All right, um, today is a day off." Sean has to go do some radio interviews and some, you know, press, but everybody else, you know, has a day off and you guys can just screw around and then tomorrow we fly to Boston or or drive to Boston. And everybody's getting their stuff and ready to go out and explore the town and Sean was like, "Not you, you're coming with me." And so I went to all the radio shows and press junkets with Sean. And I'm there as a member of Harvey Danger. I've never I mean, I've barely played a note with them, but I was, a, in a way, I think an, a little bit of insulation because Sean was so sick of talking to morning time drive zoo DJs. Sure. And these guys are like, hey, all right, Sean Nelson from Harvey Danger, how you doing? <laughs> and Sean would be like, well, I'm doing fine, thank you. And actually, I'm here with my bandmate, John. And then he and I would just start talking to each other on the radio. <laughs> and the zoo guys would be like, well, now, wait a minute. Did you guys say that you're going to play at the Budweiser tent? And Sean would just ignore them and talk to me. And he and I would laugh and have fun. And it was a pretty effective way of taking control of the situation for him. Um, He just brought his own conversationalist to all those situations. And I could also play guitar. So if it was an on-air where they wanted him to do an acoustic song, I mean, I I often was 
kind of in, in available for that. I could play the songs on guitar and he could sing and it would be like a, a in-store or whatever. And so I was in Harvey Danger for the last, really the last full year of touring of that band. And they were paying me what at the time was an extraordinary amount of money. Um, and they were very open. Uh, Sean was very open about money, which I had never experienced in in music before he sat me down and he was like, we're going to give you $500 a week plus per diems. And you're not going to have you and Mike Squires aren't going to have any ownership in the band, but it's, you know, it's going to go like this. It's real clear cut. And that was so wonderful. You know, for 10 years I'd been in the music business where everybody talked, you know, as soon as money came up, it was just like people went and hid their heads in the sand. And $500 a week was almost, well, more than double what I had ever been paid before. And what year is this? 19, oh, 2000, the year 2000. My last job before that, I was making about 900 bucks a month. Wow. And my rent was 350 bucks a month. And I'd quit drinking several years before, so I had no alcohol bills. And I lived in Capitol Hill in Seattle, and and uh, most of the you know about half of my restaurant meals were free because I knew the owner or the server. And I I mean my major expenses were cigarettes and coffee, and the coffee was mostly free. And I you know and I would go to five shows a week, but I lived in the town and was a member of the rock scene, so the shows were free. And hey, that comes out to twenty six k a year, which is actually above the poverty level in two thousand. Yeah. <laughs> right in two thousand, pretty good for 000. a musician. You know, I remember getting a I remember getting a check for five hundred bucks uh, when I had worked some overtime at my job, and I was like five hundred dollars all at once. <laughs> What am I going to do with all this money? Nice. Um, and so I went from you know from living what I felt like was pretty comfortably on nine hundred bucks a month to making uh, quite a bit more than two thousand a month because it was five hundred a week plus per diems, um, which added up to well uh, twenty bucks a day. Seven days a week, you know what I mean? Like, it, it, and I saved all my per diems because you'd you'd show up at one of those arena shows, and there's a big platter of lunch meat, and I would just—I mean, I was like Dan Aykroyd in Trading Places. <laughs> I just put the smoked salmon inside my Santa suit and stuff my pockets <laughs> with uh, bagels, and because you know what? What are you going to do? Goes if if we ever went out to an expensive restaurant meal, it was always paid for by the label or something. Sure. So I was saving all that money, and um, toward the end of the Harvey Danger run, Aaron, the bass player, got really sick, super duper sick, so sick that he needed to go to the hospital. And at that point, we were sitting in an airport in Washington, D.C., and Aaron was like, you know what, I can't, we were, we were about to fly out to California to be on the Craig Kilborn show. Nice. And Aaron said, I can't do it. I can't make it. I have to go. I have to get on a different airplane and go to Seattle and go to the hospital. And he did. He walked over. Uh, this is pre-2001. Walked over to the counter and came back with a ticket to Seattle and said, see you guys later. And got on a different airplane and was gone. And wow. they looked at me and said, well, 
we can either cancel our appearance on the Craig Kilborn show or you can play the bass. And I mean, I had played the piano a little bit before, but I had never played the electric bass, had never held an, an electric bass in my hands. But I was like, yeah, I can, I can do that. It's like a big guitar. And so they pulled Aaron's bass out of the case and I carried it onto the plane and I sat on the back of the airplane with my headphones on and I practiced the song, which is Sad Sweetheart of the Rodeo. All the way from Washington, D.C. to L.A., I was in the back trying to learn this song. Can I ask you a question now? Yeah. Were you playing with a pick or with your fingers? I was playing with a pick. I did not have the... I did not at all have the confidence or the the knowledge. Did your uh, did your thumb hurt? My well, so by the time I got to the so I was playing the bass in the limo from the airport to the hotel. I mean, I was I was going to be on national television the next day right. playing an instrument I had never played. So I was just like frantic. And by the time the next day rolled around, I had blisters on all of my fingers on both hands. You know, mm-hmm. new blisters, uh, just brand new. Yep. And we took the um, took the limo over to the television studio, and we're there, and walked out on stage, and they plugged me into the bass amp, and I went bom bom bom, and that was the first time I had ever played the electric bass. And then I turned around, and the guy with the headset on was like five, four, three. <laughs> And we just launched into this song. We had never rehearsed it with me on the bass. And I mean, as I say, had never I had never played this instrument before. But we, but sheer adrenaline, um, carried us through. Uh, it's, I think it's on the internet. Sad sweetheart of the rodeo on the Craig Kilborn show. And um, we got off. Of the st- we got you know we got back into the green room and it was like wow it worked and they said well yeah and you know we have the rest of this tour to finish our next show is in Buffalo in two days do you think you can learn all the songs <laughs> and I felt at the time like I've learned the piano to be in this band and now I have learned a song on the bass I can learn all the songs and the difficulty was that Aaron Huffman the bass player of Harvey Danger, writes the most interesting bass lines. They are not just root notes. They're very melodic. <laughs> he's, a, he's a featured player in the band. So you couldn't just translate your guitar parts. You actually had to learn. Yeah, no, they were all melodies. Every single, every single bass line is, is a distinctive part, and the, my piano knowledge of the songs did not translate over. Yeah, so, I, I did this in a punk rock band. I was a guitar player who became a sudden bassist. Mm-hmm. And, and the reason I asked if your thumb hurt was because switching from guitar strumming to bass picking, it's a, it's a whole different hand movement that well, made yeah, my your thumb whole, cramp. Your whole, yeah, your whole, the meat of your thumb just cramps like, like, um, like it's somebody stabbing it with a knife. Right. And I was fortunate. To, it's punk rock, so it was all root notes that I could add flourish to. Yeah, but you had to hit it pretty hard. Yeah. And and Harvey Danger was punk rock, and I mean they were not. They were a loud, loud band. The and the bass rig was was a uh, you know a proper SVT full bass rig, but then also a, a a large Fender guitar amp 
that all of the distortion effects were run through. So it was a huge bass sound. So again, I went back to the hotel and I'm, I'm trying to learn all the songs. Uh, I'm, I'm playing them on the, I'm playing them on the, the flight to Buffalo. I'm playing them in the hotel there. I'm playing them in the, in the, the bus. And uh, we take the stage and I played the entire set. Uh, not especially, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to hear a recording of that, but I, but I made it. And, um, and I played the bass in Harvey Danger for the rest of that tour, which was, a, which was like a, a, a massive undertaking, but also a huge confidence boost for me. You know, I'd always felt like making music was kind of a mysterious, uh, magical sorcery. And here in the space of under a year, I'd learned two new instruments because the, the whole time I was playing piano in the band, I actually was up on stage trying to play the piano and, and was getting better from show to show. I mean, I would play a show and then the next show I would be better. And then the next show I would be even better until I was pretty confident on the piano. Not, you know, I couldn't read music. I wasn't a good piano player, but I could definitely play those songs. And it was knowledge that did translate, you know, I, well, so anyway, at the end of that tour, I had saved all the money I'd made in Harvey Danger, which was 10,000 American dollars. And I had learned how to play the piano and the bass. So it felt, and Harvey Danger was like the tour as the tour was ending, it was evident that the record label had not supported that album, that the sales had been flat and the band felt like it had somewhat run its course. You know, nobody, nobody felt like they had a huge head of steam to go to the next thing. The guys in the band were sort of distant from one another. It, it felt like the end in a way. And so Sean was looking for a new thing to do. And we got back to Seattle. And some combination of Sean Nelson and Chris Walla came to me. I mean, how many combinations of those two guys are there? There's just one possible combination. It's Sean Nelson and Chris Walla. But I think spearheaded by Sean, they came to me and said, listen, you've got all these songs all these Western State Hurricane songs, all these Bun Family Players songs, this, this back catalog of music. You've never, you've never made an album. Why don't we make an album now? And um, it'll be half John songs, half Sean songs. Chris Walla will produce it. And it'll be a, a brand new start for both of you guys. Sean will... Um, Sean's got all these songs that he's been co-writing with Peter Buck. And I have access to all these old long winter songs. Let's put a record out where it's Sean and John. And we actually, at the end of the Harvey Danger tour, the last thing we did, we flew, we'd played a show in like Davenport, Iowa. And we flew on a small commuter plane to Chicago and went in and spent one 
really long day in the studio with Bob Weston. And Bob recorded, you know, Bob had engineered in utero. Bob is in shellac. Like Bob was a hero. And um, it turned out he was a Harvey Danger fan. And actually Bob was a great host to us. And we, the long winners stayed at Bob Weston's house, you know, five times in the early days of touring. But he made a record, he made a recording of me and Sean playing this little set that we had worked up as a kind of demo for this Sean and John album we were talking about making. And right before we went in to record it, we kind of had this heart to heart where I had 30 songs to choose from. And Sean, the songs that he'd been working on sort of based on Peter Buck demos that Peter had given Sean as a sort of as a favor. The way Peter Buck would write REM records is he would go upstairs in his home studio and he would record 15 songs and make a CD. And then he'd record 15 more songs and make a CD. And when he had five CDs with 15 complete music beds, he would give those CDs to Michael Stipe and Michael would pick the ones he liked the best and sing vocals on them. And then that was how REM demos got made. And so Peter had shelves and shelves of songs that, that just happened to be ones that Michael Stipe didn't choose. They weren't really, I mean, they all sounded like REM songs. They all sounded amazing. Uh, they were just songs that, just didn't end up being REM songs. And so he had given a handful of these CDs to Sean and you know, just said like, well, you can't use song number two because that's losing my religion, but you can use the rest of the songs on that CD. And so Sean was writing lyrics to these Peter Buck compositions and it was very exciting. But that felt more like a project that Sean and Peter should do. And you know, because Sean didn't really play an instrument, it was hard for him to come in and say and sit down behind the piano and be like, "All right, well, here's my tune. Let's work on this." He was kind of relying on me to learn these Peter Buck songs, and I was focused on my own songs. And we had a, an uncomfortable conversation, and one that sort of set the tone for many years, and you know, and and maybe was my first betrayal of him but where I said, we're about to go into the studio to make a record, and the idea is that it's a John and Sean record, but I really feel like it, we should just make a John Roderick record, and then if it, you know, if it turns out that we have a big head of steam, then we should make a Sean Nelson record. But like John and Sean just feels a little, it just feels a little weird, and it doesn't, it feels like we would be forcing it where it would be very easy to just make a record of 10 of my songs. And Sean agreed. And, you know, and I think there's an argument to be made that I was being mercenary and there's an argument to be made that I was doing the right thing. Probably both things are true. But we made that first long winner's record and it was basically uh, Chris Walla and Sean and me and a few uh, of our friends, we got the 
uh, what at the time was the famous Posey's rhythm section. Joe Bass on bass and Brian Young, the drummer of um, the band that does Stacy's Mom. Uh, give me the <laughs> what are they called? Uh, what's the Stacy's Mom band? I'm looking on, it Brad. up for you. I'm looking it up because I don't know. Stacy's mom got it going on. American it's, band Fountains of Wayne. That's right. Thank you. So, so Brian Young was the drummer of Fountains of Wayne. They were taking this was before Stacy's mom. They were taking a little time off. Brian was playing in the Posies. They were the rhythm section for that first Long Winter's record, or for for half of it. Ben Gibbard plays the drums on one track. Robbie Zaraki plays the drums on a few tracks. But it was the first time I really went into the studio and was like, well, you know what? I can play the bass. I can play the piano. I can play the guitar. I can do this. I can. This isn't wizardry. It is a doable thing. And not only that, but I have $10,000. So I can pay for it. And we worked and worked. We, you know, it was, it was a thing where we would work for four days and then we would take two weeks off and then we'd work for four days. And, but we worked on it for months. And there weren't any restrictions. You know, I didn't have a band that, that uh, was, you know, trying to get involved in the creative process. Chris was trying to, to, to be a producer. And was, it, this was the first 24-track record that Chris Walla ever made. So he was learning this whole new genre. And Sean was there every day and, you know, and of the three of us, he was the one with sort of the most accomplished ear. He was contributing, you know, just advice where it was needed. You know, he was listening and saying yes to this, no to that, producing basically. And we made this, we made the first Long Winners record, which at the time had no, the band had no name and, um, I think the tape boxes all say like untitled John Roderick project on them or something. (laughs) And uh, we got to the end of it and it was, it sounded like an album. It sounded like an album, not like any band that I had ever heard. And I think it sounded contemporary. It was much less distortion guitar rock than I'd ever played before and much more like pianos and small broken toy instruments and keyboards you know it was it was the beginning of like indie what became indie twee and it's not that uh, that our record was a was like the source material it was just happening in that in the stew of that time sure and also in the in like the this creative feeling that I had where somebody put an instrument in my hands and I was like, yes, I can play it. I can play the lap steel. I can play the broken toy keyboard because I can play anything now. Uh, a, a, real, a real feeling of discovery and like, let me do it. Uh, let me play it. I will figure it out. And what, so about, all the pe- what about wind instruments? No, as far as I know, maybe a little, <laughs> bit, of, a little bit of kazoo. <laughs> but like all the piano on that record is played by me and that is coming from a place where a year before I could not play the piano at all. So it was very exciting. And uh, at the end of that, I was ready to leave Seattle. I'd had a terrible breakup with, uh, with a girl and I felt like 
I'd been in Seattle for 10 years and it had run its course. And so I had a, a good friend in New York. Uh, she'd moved there a couple of years before and she was like, listen, throw some shirts in a small bag and get on a train and come to New York and we'll just, you can just live with me and we'll just live in New York and all you'll just leave Seattle behind. And I did. I got a $125 cross country train ticket and went to New York and I lived with her and I lived with my friend Chris and I was there for four months and it was just this idyllic time for me. I wrote basically all the songs of the second Long Winter's record in this little railroad apartment in Spanish Harlem and um, I would walk around New York all day and didn't have any, I was still kind of living on the last bit of money that I had from Harvey Danger because the the album had, oh, the album only cost $5,000 to make. I still had $5,000. And I lived in New York that whole summer and I felt like this is where I belong. I love, it. I love New York and I, and, I, and I belong here. But over, the, over the, the course of that same period, it became clear that Barsook wanted to release the album. And Barsook had learned through hard experience that if a band puts a, re- a record out, they need, to have a, they need to go on tour and they need to be a good touring band, like a strong touring band. And so I was on the phone with Seattle all the time and they were saying, listen, you need to have a strong touring band and it's a lot, going to be a lot easier to do that in Seattle than it is in New York. You know, you know everybody in Seattle. You have a van. You can buy a van in Seattle. You can have a practice space for cheap. And I was playing with musicians in New York at the time, but it was like the New York model didn't make sense to me. You'd pay uh, $300 to rent a studio for an hour. You know, it just was crazy to me the the expense and the the feeling of crowdedness. In Seattle for $300 a month you could have your own studio, you leave your stuff there, you go hang out there in the afternoons. Do you find Seattle as romantic though? Like the idea of Spanish Harlem and walking New York sounds intrinsically romantic. Oh, it was. It was. And I, you know, and like I say I wrote that whole second record. Right. Um, I would walk, you know, I, I would leave Spanish Harlem and I would walk and walk and walk until I was in the battery. And then I would turn around and walk a different way back. And I was walking miles and miles and miles and just, just, uh, trying to walk every street. I mean, I walking the avenues was easy, but then walking every street I could think of to walk and, and Wait, I got to ask one question. Mm-hmm. Was this like 2001, 2002? This was the summer of 2001. I may have been homeless in New York the same time you were there. Well, I may have stepped over you on my way <laughs> up and down the up and down the boulevard. You never saw a, a punk rocker with a a white tag from NA laying on a sidewalk and asked him how he was doing, did you? It's I would die if that was you. It wouldn't be inconsistent with my <laughs> normal behavior. Okay. But all the punk rockers I've stepped over in New York City, boy. <laughs> If I had a dollar for every one. <laughs> okay, never mind. But uh, eventually I succumbed to the idea that going back to Seattle and, and getting the foundation of a band together was a good idea. And my plan was to go back to Seattle, put a band together, get a van, 
go out on tour. And once I was out on tour, it didn't matter where I lived. And so I would move back to New York. But going back to Seattle was just a temporary move to, to get a band up and running. And my roommate in New York, uh, uh, one of, one of my roommates in New York, uh, a guy named Chris Cornelia, who had been a friend of mine and a roommate of mine in Seattle years before. He loved the record that I'd made. He wanted to be part of the band and he wanted to be the bass player. And I was like, no way, no chance. And then he was like, what if I'm the keyboard player? And it had this, it had this circular logic, this, this um, not circular reasoning, but like this beautiful kind of the circle is complete Chris Keneally doesn't know how to play the piano, just as I did not know how to play the piano <laughs> a year ago. And so I'm going to have him be the piano player in my band because I like him. He's my friend. I want to have a band full of friends. And so Chris like bid farewell to his girlfriend. And the two of us were going out to Seattle to, to put a band together. And the last thing we did, September 1st, 2001, was we went to the top of the World Trade Center to like survey the town one last time and say goodbye and we'll be back soon. Farewell. Uh, and we flew out to Seattle and then of course nine days later uh, the whole world changed. Right. And we were in a way kind of we felt a little bit like marooned in Seattle, it didn't feel like a really super good time to try and go back to New York. And we did put a band together. And uh, at that point, Sean was pretty disinterested in the band. He felt like he had helped make that record, but he needed to go do other things. And, I mean, maybe felt a little bit burned that we hadn't made a Sean and John record. But, you know, was sort of nursing a whole lot of hurts in the sense that the Harvey danger experience hadn't turned out the way he'd wanted. Um, there were a lot of things going on with Sean. Uh, and we booked a couple of shows, the new long winters band, which featured former Western state hurricanes drummer, Michael Schilling, who was the guy who basically broke up the Western state hurricanes. And against my better judgment, I hired him to be the drummer in the long winters because I really loved his playing and I like him as a guy, but he was the, he was the reason the hurricanes broke up <laughs> and I made him promise that he wouldn't break up this band and he did promise. And then, uh, uh, a kid that I had never met before. I was asking around town, like anybody know any bass players? And somebody was like, I know a guy that plays the bass. And I said, well, you know, send him over to my house and I'll audition him. And the, the, doorbell rang and here was this guy who just looked like he was in high school. He really did. He was so young looking and so kind of young seaman. Um, and I gave him a tape of the record and was like, you know, learn, you know, learn this song and learn that song and we'll have you in at the end of the week to audition. And he was like, okay, you know, off he went. And I, when I shut the door, I was like, no way, that's embarrassing. Like that, he's just like some really weird kid from the suburbs and that's not going to work out. But I didn't have a lot of other options and he showed up for the rehearsal. And uh, he showed up without a, with no instrument. And I was like, where's your bass? 
And he said, oh, um, I don't have a base. <laughs> and I said, well, how did you learn the songs? He was like, oh, well, I've got a, I learned them on guitar. So he had a, he had an acoustic guitar that only had five strings on it. And he <laughs> learned the bass lines on this acoustic guitar. And I was like, oh my God, this is the worst moment of my life. This dumb kid doesn't even own a bass. But we were having rehearsals in the Harvey Danger practice space. So there were 20 basses in there. And I was like, here's a bass. Here's the amp. Let's, you know, let's run this one time and see how embarrassing it is. And we launched into the first song and he played it flawlessly, just flawlessly. And like with feeling and rock and roll and we got to the end and I was just like gasping and looked around and everybody in the room was like, what the hell? So I was like, all right, well, let's play the other song I told you to learn. And we played that and he just nailed it. Because nothing's more rock and roll than a bass player without a bass. Doesn't own a bass. I, I, <laughs> I think he was in the same clothes that he had been in three days before when he came to my house, like that green. And so I said, well, Okay, and so we played those two songs like three or four times each, and it was like, okay, well, you're pretty good at, the, at that. Why don't you go learn the rest of the songs on the record, and we'll have you back for another audition. And he said, uh, well, I know the other songs already. <laughs> and I'd given it to him on Wednesday, and this was Friday. And I was like, really? And so we launched in, and we played our entire album, and he knew every note. And, um, and, and played them well, in fact, probably was by far the best person in the room, the best <laughs> musician in the room by far. And so even, I mean, even though every other signifier in the world suggested like this guy is not going to be able to cut it, like he's joining a band full of dudes in their 30s who are some pretty mean dudes when it, it gets right down to it. And he is like wet behind the ears. Uh, but he's so amazing that I just I couldn't I couldn't get away from him and I couldn't imagine another guy. And so that was Eric Corson and he was the bass player in the Long Winners the entire time and and uh, by far like the longest member and most devoted member. So we booked a show and um and Sean Nelson was there in the audience. And we started playing our songs. We played a couple of three songs and Sean was there sort of, you know, cheering us on and watching from the front of the stage. And we got to, you know, song number three or four. And I said, well, you know, there's a guy in the audience here who, uh, who knows all these songs. Maybe he'll get up and join us. And Sean was like, you know, jumped up on stage and sang all of his parts flawlessly through the rest of the set. And then when we got done with that show, he was like, well, that was super fun. I mean, I can't be in the band, but that was really fun. I'm glad you called me up. And we had another show about a week later, and I was like, well, you know, maybe you'll come to that show. And he was like, yeah, okay, I'll come and see it. And so he came to that show, and we played about three songs. And then I said, maybe Sean will get up and sing one. And he jumped up and sang the rest of the set with us. And from that point on, he just was in the long winters. <laughs> um. And we had a conversation where it was like, okay, I guess I want to be in the band, he says. But 
he was really still pretty famous and also still reeling from everything that had happened. We had a kind of long conversation where it was like, all right, you know, if you're going to be in the band, you got to be in the band for at least a year. Like, I don't want you just coming and going every other show. And he committed to it. And we got in the van, which was the Harvey Danger van. Harvey Danger had gotten a big, a big check from their label when they signed. And the label was like, we want to put you out on tour, you know, in a big tour bus. And they were like, no, we don't want to be in a tour bus. We're a punk rock band. And they went and bought a Ford Econoline. And their first big year when they were really touring all the time, like a crazy arena band, they were doing it all in a van. Even though every other band at their level had a bus, even though the label was fighting them to have a bus, they were like, no, 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 we need to do it in a van. It's got to be legit. Did you ever read Henry Rollins' Get in the Van? It's exactly. <laughs> okay. Well, and also that whole, that whole thing in that Pearl Jam documentary where Eddie Vedder's like, you know, they're the biggest band in the world and Eddie Vedder is driving from show to show in a van. <laughs> yeah. Because he, you know, because he, he wants to be legit. He doesn't want to be a, you know, the rest of the band is in a private plane and he's driving in a <laughs> 75 Ford Econo line or whatever. I can respect but, that. Yeah, I mean, in a way, but in a way it's also pretty, um, I mean, that, it's, a, it's an example of somebody not recognizing where they are. Right. It's know? almost like desperate for credibility but yeah right like it listen you're the singer of pearl jam like whether you're in a van or not changes nothing no nobody like henry rollins is going to like you anyway because you're in pearl jam and everybody likes the guy that's successful <laughs> and he's not going to respect you more for being in a van nobody does you know except teenagers right but so harvey danger had this tremendous van that they'd put forty thousand miles on um and so the long winters just sort of started using it. We didn't even rent it from them. We just started using it. And for the first year, we toured all around the country in this sort of just borrowed van. And the reason that we could use it was that Sean was in our band and he owned it or part of it. And so the long winters were really supported. And I mean, they were funded by Harvey Danger and supported by Sean and Harvey Danger in, uh, in so many ways. The, the money they paid me went to make the record. Sean produced the record for all intents and purposes and then was in the band and also provided the van and was also like, you know, he then was the same for me as I had been for him, a guy that could go to interviews and radio stations and just give me somebody to talk to. And we toured all around and we did it for, we toured and we made that second long winters record and we toured that record all around and Sean and Michael stayed in the band. Chris Cornelia ended up leaving after a while because I wouldn't let him eat raw tuna fish in the van. <laughs> But after two years, both Sean and Michael left at the same time. We got done with our first big European tour and it had been, it was cold and it was wet. And I think everybody felt like the Long Winters were a band that was going to blow up. And once we blew up, it, the traveling would be easier. 
We'd be able to hire people. We would move to a bus. Things would get easier. And the long winters always got better and our popularity increased. Always. But never blew up. And it always seemed like, well, you know, this next thing we do is going to be the moment where it really takes off. We went over to Europe and our European record label was really excited about us. People in the Netherlands and Spain were really excited about the band. We did really well, but we never exploded. And so after a few years, both Sean and Michael felt like they were they, we were doing things that they had already done a bunch of times, which is get in the van and drive for long distances and play uh, for 300 people. And there is a certain logic to that. You know, you're in a band, and once you've done that 800 times, what you want is to start playing for 1,000 people, or you want to get in the bus and do it all again. And... You know, and we were progressing in a much smaller way. Like we no longer had to share beds in the motel. Now everybody got their own bed. It was still two dudes to a room, but everybody got their own bed. And then Sean and Michael left right about the time that it was like everybody gets their own room. But that's not much of a evolution if you're 35 years old and have other dreams. So they left the band, and it was just me and Eric. And it felt like maybe at the end of the second album that maybe we were done. The band had done its thing, and maybe it should be over. And that was January of 2004. Now, it seems like it's an hour and nine minutes into this podcast, and I have not gotten us to the present day. It's an hour and six minutes, and you're 10 years from the present day. Yeah. How does that happen? I don't know. This is, a, this is an intricate story. It's pretty intricate, and I'm skating over some key material because I was— <laughs> I'd be willing to bet you are. I was trying to get to the end, but I'm realizing now that there's no way— that I will be able to get to the present day. There's 10 years of bullshit to get through. Well, I am happy to do episode four. Do you feel like this is still interesting? Uh, You have no idea how well people are responding to this because you don't see all the tweets and all the emails, Mm -hmm. but people love you. People consider this the sideline to Roderick on the line. Mm Mm-hmm. The perfect companion. This is the backstory. Yeah. So I I heartily invite you back for episode four. Probably probably the conclusion. Yeah, I think episode four will definitely be the conclusion. If we can get through ten years in one episode, yeah. Yeah, because we, you know, we had a lot to cover there. All of Harvey Danger and all of the making of the first record and all of the touring. So, so do you promise to come back for a fourth, uh, fourth and final episode? If the audience will bear it, it feels a little bit, it, well, not a little bit. It feels incredibly indulgent. But if your, if your uh, viewers, viewers, which is on to a say podcast, listeners, yeah, if your podcast viewers, uh, 
want to hear this, I guarantee you in the next episode, I will get us to the present day with a full context of everything that's happened. Well, if anyone, if anyone writes me and complains, I will let you know, but I don't think that will happen. You know, there are, there are complainers out there who will complain, complain, complain. If they write you, you should block them. <laughs> what if they, anyone writes to complain, you should block them immediately. What they will write me about is how long it's taking me to get to this fourth installment. So we'll say within a couple, three weeks, okay? Okay, all right. All right. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I appreciate you doing all this uh, diligent, like, setting aside of time and work. <laughs> I do. I do this automatically. I just happen to enjoy it more the most when it's with people that I really enjoy talking to. Well, thank you. So next time we will get to the end, and then you can ask. I will get to the end before it's it, before it takes me an hour, and then you can ask any questions that you want, and we'll take viewer mail. Uh, we can we can take questions from the audience. We'll, we'll put it out on Twitter. All right. All right. Well, thanks for being here, John. Thank you, sir. It's a great pleasure. And that was episode, I don't know, 113? Yeah. Episode 113 of Systematic with John Roderick. And I'm Brett Terpstra. I'm TT Scoff Everywhere. And we will see everybody in another week with a fourth follow-up from John Roderick very soon. Thanks for listening. <laughs>